What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm one of your hosts, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Hello, Ben. How's it going? It's going great. We're in the middle of the coronavirus scare, the coronavirus pandemic. Life is terrifying, but we're watching movies and we're talking about them. So, like, how bad can it be? It's so good. So, so, so good. Uh, (laughs) We have a third guest today. He's a very dear friend of mine. We've known each other for a very long time. We've made movies together. We've talked about a lot of movies together. We've gone to see movies together. This is Will Axelrod. How's it going, Will? Pretty good. How you guys doing? This coronavirus craziness. Uh, Rewind the episode and you can listen to how we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. All right. So, Will, (laughs) since you're new here, let me explain to you the premise of the podcast. And back to the movies, we revisit some of the great years in cinema history. And we look at the movies that defined it. The critical successes, the commercial hits, the weird forgotten favorites and then also the ones that didn't really work but still helped define what it was we're starting our first season is on the year 1990 it was the year nat and i were born were you born in 1990 same year yeah 1990 yeah. so you know it's 30 years ago we're all a little nostalgic for a simpler time we just <laughs> wanted we desperately want to go back uh so that's why we chose that year um and we are on now our fifth episode and we are still in the spring of 1990, and we are covering a big one today. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage <laughs> Mutant Ninja Turtles. What day? What day did it come out? I think it was end of March. I'm pretty sure. It is definitely end of March. I think it might be like the 20s somewhere in there. And I'll we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that at the at the end. We're talking about box office because there's a great little anecdote about another movie that came out in March that we've already covered. It's late March 90, so I'm I'm going to be born in a few days. I'm a month old. Teenage Mutant Turtles is the I'm, thing. I'm, my, my parents are uh, getting the hand-me-downs ready. Um, I'm like I'm a couple months <laughs> later. <laughs> You're just yeah, in June. I'm, I'm, I'll pop out in June. It's, I feel like for this is like kind of a very blockbuster-esque kind of movie. I'm surprised that it would have come out in March. Also, it's a very summer movie. Like you know, there's a lot of like sweat and there's a lot of. Uh... Well, we'll talk about this <laughs> when we get into the production history. But this movie did not. There was not a lot of faith in it before it came out. Uh, people did not think it was going to do well. Movie studios did not think it was going to do well. Um, but obviously, it's huge. It's a huge movie. Everybody knows it. A lot of people love it. Will, we brought you on because you love this movie, right? Yeah. Um, I honestly, this is like one of those movies that I had um, on VHS that I watched like 200 times as a kid. You know, it was it was one of those movies. <laughs> it was like one of, of my collection of like 10 films. Like this one was always on and I was telling Nat a while ago, like this was like my workout film as a kid. I would memorize, I memorized all the choreography uh, to the fight scenes, uh, uh, and, and I would just do them in my room. Tybo with Donatello, you know, to the best of my like six, seven-year-old ability. Um, and uh, and I would really, and I would really. Sweat. And now you have a very successful career in martial and now, arts. Yeah, I got a ripping six-pack and um, <laughs> just fighting crime. No. Um, I don't know what it was about this movie. It might have just been like it because it was in my house all the time that I loved it so much and I watched it so much. Like, who knows? Uh, I mean, I also had an older brother that had a lot of like, you know, Ninja Turtle action figures and that kind of thing. So it's like. Did he watch the cartoon show? Um, yeah, we must have had the cartoon show on, but really this was like my Ninja Turtles life. Do you have a specific memory of, of like a particular time watching it, like a first time or, 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 you know, with a group of people that was particularly memorable? 
Um, I would say I have a very specific memory of like what I was saying. Uh, you know, there's a scene later on we'll probably talk about uh, where Raphael is like on a rooftop, um, kind of like blowing off some steam and a fight scene ensues shortly after. But that scene in particular, I remember like playing, watching it to its, uh, to the end and then starting over again and then doing the fight scene and then starting over again and doing the fight scene (laughs) over again and then just keep doing that. Um, and really like burning a sweat and I can actually like picture the TV I had. I can picture my room at the time. Um, so what it was the was the VHS special at all? Did it have like a green plastic no thing? Or no, it didn't. Cool? Well, was it in a clamshell? Uh, that would have been sick. No, it was in a um, my copy. I can't say I remember what the sleeve looked like, but I can definitely remember remember the logo on the uh, like the logo on the VHS itself was like the normal Ninja Turtles logo. That's like the classic eighties one. Um, okay. Right, that was like from was the cartoon right originally. Uh, yeah, exactly. I always thought it was so so cool when they would change the color of the tape or like they had like Nickelodeon orange tapes. And was like, wow. That's like the original criterion collection. Was, did the cartoon, <laughs> did the cartoon of this movie come out before this, uh, before the movie? Um, or was it, cause it, it, it was did. a comic also. Yeah. We'll talk about the cartoon shortly, but before we do, I, I want to grab some initial reactions from Nat too. This was your first time seeing the movie, right? Nat? Yes. It was not in the circuit of my VHS classics. I didn't have it growing up. I, I'm not really a Turtles person at all. I don't know anything about them. They, they sort of escaped me. I watched Power Rangers when I was five years old, which was sure. probably terrible for my brain, but <laughs> it is you you fall in love with whatever it is that you come across, and that's, sure. that got me somehow. I mean, unlike a lot of the other movies that we've talked about, Teen Mutant Ninja Turtles is as much a brand as it is like a movie so you must have had some awareness of it it was unavoidable in our childhood i mean yeah my awareness of it in my childhood was just oh there's turtles and pizza and they're ninjas i guess and they live in the sewer like i got that from far away but i never sat down and watched all the important details i never sat down and watched the series i didn't know about like their their origin or nothing like that i've worked on some turtles stuff at my job, we, we did like a trailer for like a new series of turtles. So I got a little oh taste of it there. I feel like, which may have soured <laughs> yeah, it for me. I feel like if that is your first impression of Ninja Turtles, like whatever the new stuff that has been coming out is garbage, which I can't yeah. help but not think about, like, you know, that's already, you're already setting yourself up for like a disappointing <laughs> adventure <laughs> into the, into the turtles universe. You know, this was my first time truly with the turtles uh without it being a business interaction um and you know i i i'm old now i i watch this movie like a dad bringing a five-year-old to a movie and he doesn't understand what the hell's going on uh i i really feel old watching this movie just because i'm like ah what are these goddamn turtles doing now like that was the (laughs) reaction i had sadly um but you know i i did appreciate a lot of things about it i loved old Dinkins era, New York City. That shit yeah. is awesome. I love pizza. I, I have a respect <laughs> you for the, Domino's pizza. Oh God, we can talk about that later. I, I have a respect for the craft of the of the costuming and and puppetry and stuff. But yeah, man, it's yeah. it's a goddamn kids movie. There's turtles fighting. <laughs> what the hell is this? Put on the game. So I was in a similar boat to you, Nat, in that I, I hadn't seen the film before and I wasn't a big. TMNT guy when I was a kid, I actually will actually, I think what you said about having an older brother was pretty cogent here for me. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was always sort of an eighties thing. It was a gen X thing. 
that felt like it had passed by the time I was old enough to start consuming that kind of content. Sure. And so, and without anyone introducing me to it, it just sort of passed me by so that by the time I could introduce myself to it, you know, when I'm a teenager, I'm a little bit too old for it. Um, And that was similarly how I felt watching this movie. Although I might go even a little bit harder in the paint for this being a bad movie, not just a kid's movie. That's hard for adults, but like (laughs) a movie that is bad in it's movie qualities. I was going to say, before we get too deep in the reviews, I have a really important question for the two of you. Will, I think you should go first. Um, which turtle are you? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I love uh, Leonardo, right? You know, I, 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 I'm not a super turtle geek that I could, I'm pretty sure Leonardo's the blue one, right? Yeah, he's the blue one. He's like the, okay. I guess, the sort of leader. Uh, yeah, I always I always resonated with him. Yeah, because he was like the stoic one, uh, and he, he. So you weren't like the rebel. I wasn't the rebel. I wasn't a rebel growing up. But I think as I'm getting older, and as I'm just getting like more pessimistic and generally angrier and distrustful of this world that we live in, especially in these times, like I felt sympathy. I definitely felt sympathy for Michelangelo throughout this movie, you know, because he actually is just generally really frustrated. You know, there's a couple tidbits also that I forgot to share. Um, I also had turtles growing up, and they lived in my bathtub. And one of them was named Michael. Oh yeah, one of them was named Michelangelo. Did you put little masks over their faces? I did. Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> did you dip them in radioactive goo? Um, I mean, I consider New York City water probably similar to radioactive goo, <laughs> so it was similar. Um, but it's so funny hearing, like, already this, like, you know, I can just see where this podcast is going, like, the energy towards this <laughs> towards this movie. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, yeah, definitely having an older brother was helpful because, uh, you know, he was eight years old by the time I was four years old. Like, you wouldn't give a four-year-old this sure. movie, you know, to watch. But Ben, you also have an older brother. He wasn't in Eternals he's, at all? He's much closer in age, though. He's only 16 months older than me. So, he's, okay. you know, he's basically the same age I am. And, 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 and maybe um, we're going to talk a little bit about, like, New York and New York at the time in, in, in a minute. But um, one reason why this movie also resonates with me and why I actually really enjoyed it still, uh, watching it, uh, you know, last night... Um, was because you know I grew up down in downtown New York in the nineties, and it sure. was it honestly it was very reminiscent of like how the energy the just general energy of the city felt it wasn't just like this like caricature it, even at the time like I felt it was a little accurate which we could talk about we'll talk about it in a bit yeah a lot of gangs of teenagers hanging out in weird Pinocchio Pleasure Island. Oh my Night god. spots, ninjas <laughs> yeah, coordinating street I robberies. Mean, if there had just been a hookah bar in in the background of that scene, that would have been pretty accurate, honestly. Uh, <laughs> Nat's talking about 2005 New York now, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 1990. All right, Nat, I haven't heard your answer yet about which turtle you are. Can I answer this as the as the 40-year-old dad who's frustrated? <laughs> yes, please do. Uh, <laughs> these goddamn turtles, I don't know which one I am. I'm the... I'm the one with the sword, uh, the red one. I don't even know the difference between them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I guess I'm the frustrated one, the one yeah, that had to, that was pissed off and was wearing a trench coat. Although I did really appreciate the enthusiasm. Did the other two even have personalities? Honestly, they were just so, sort of the yes men. I'm glad you brought that up because according to the character description, Donatello is the 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 smart one, right? And. Uh, <laughs> As a you know, as a, as an academic-minded person, that would have been my go-to choice. But I don't remember that character displaying any like 
book learning or wisdom. He just was in the background most of the time doing like high fives with the other guy. <laughs> yeah, he and Michelangelo were just like like the pizza comic relief. They were like the stoners. Yeah, that's true. They're, they're all stoners. Come on. <laughs> they are. It's amazing. So yeah, I don't know which turtle I am. I guess, I yeah, the red one. Raphael? Is he Raphael? Raphael. Yeah. Oh, wait. I mean, he's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The main Raphael, character not of the Michelangelo. Movie, so. I, was, I, I mixed them up. Uh, a, a little while ago. Raphael, Raphael is the is leader. The red one. You're right. Michelangelo's orange. And Leonardo. Leonardo's Leonardo blue. is kind of the the smarter second in command. No. And then the other two. No, are no, just... no. Leonardo is the first in command in blue. Donatello's yeah. in purple. Raphael's like the rebel who wants to be in charge, but he's too hot headed. Oh, too hot. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and Michelangelo it, is orange. You're right. Yeah. And what are their four weapons, really quick? That's the size, the chucks, <laughs> the the staff, and what's the fourth? Yeah. Oh my. Why is that triggering that they each have different fucking weapons? <laughs> I mean, even as somebody who wasn't a fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as a kid, yeah. like, ninja weapons were cool yeah. when we were kids. Totally. Were, like, this, to- this movie just cool. constantly had me thinking back to that South Park episode where they're ninjas and how they're obsessed with the weapons that and then they all injure each other and they all injure them they like kill they hit butters with a, a throwing star <laughs> oh, yeah. in the eye <laughs> can we just talk about that episode I actually throwing stars so bad when i was a kid i would ask for them every christmas i just i wanted throwing stars and my parents never <laughs> gave them to me go figure uh, what the hell well, Matt, did, when as a kid did you ever go to chinatown and like get, go to the the stores that sold ninja gear and like ninja weapons and so, stuff yeah it's just i wasn't a ninja I was way more cowboy gangster. That okay. was my niche. Okay. So it's it's different strokes for different totally. folks, you know. Should we get into the meat of this thing a little bit here? I actually yeah, I, want, I want some background here. Yeah. So this is again sort of a unique film for us to cover. We talked about Hunt for Red October in our first episode, which was based off an existing property. And Tom Clancy, even in 1990, was beginning to establish himself as a brand. But even he was nowhere near the level of cultural ubiquity that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had reached by the year 1990. So I wanted to talk a little bit about them as like a property and a brand before we actually talked about this movie, because I don't think you can view this movie outside of that phenomenon. And that story is actually really quite interesting. Do y'all know much about any of this? No idea. I don't. Have either of you ever read any of the comics? Nope. Def not. No. No. So TMNT starts as like an underground comic book series by these two guys, Eastman and Laird, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. They were aspiring comic book artists and writers, and they self-published the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book as a sort of dark spoof on the Frank Miller style ninja comics that were really popular at the time. So his run on Daredevil, he had a really popular book called Ronin. And so they, they wanted to make a parody of that, but one that was still kind of grim and dark and, and aped his style, which was hyper-violent and full of sort of over-exaggerated machismo. Now, he was, at the time, you know, a legendary comic book writer and artist. I think his reputation has faded a little bit with time. Well, he had the whole Sin City phenomenon when that movie came out. Like, he had like a re- and 300, that was huge. Right. I know he didn't direct those, but it was his name was out there. Right, that was sort of his second chapter, but his politics got in the way a little bit. He's a pretty hard-right conservative dude, and he said some really controversial things over the years. But as an origin point, it was actually a pretty good thing to spoof, and doing it with Turtles is like a weird stroke of genius. It's absurd, but also 
iconic almost immediately. The name alone is amazing. It's just so there's something good. about the name. <laughs> it's got it a really great just, rhythm to it. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Like it, it's just, that's the theme song of the new one that I worked on. I don't know if that's like an actual theme song, but that's, that's the old school one. It just rolls that's, off that's the, the old school one. Yeah. I think it that's is, the original okay. cartoon. Well, and so that's where this goes next. The comics are popular. And so they immediately look at licensing it and they are first approached by toy companies. Now, the 80s are a really interesting time for cartoons and toys together. There was a toy mogul, a toy exec named Bernard Loomis. And you probably haven't heard his name, but you may have heard a term that he coined called toyetic. Have you guys heard that before? Never heard that before. So infamously, he was in a meeting with Steven Spielberg for the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They were potentially going to pick up the toy license and he says you know steven this is a great movie but could you make it more toyetic meaning could you design the ships and the aliens so that it was easier to make toys out of them and to make more toys out of them and then that term becomes associated with star wars and then later with the batman series particularly when joel schumacher takes over and they start introducing new costume variants and vehicles specifically with the idea that that would allow them to sell more toys okay but Loomis is, he predates that a little bit. He's a toy exec. He starts at Mattel and then he moves to Kenner. At Mattel, he is put in charge of promoting Hot Wheels, the toy car brand. And his idea is, what if we made an animated TV show about the Hot Wheels cars? The FCC says, nope, that's advertising. That's not entertainment. You can't do that on kids' television. But by the time the 80s roll around, Reagan's administration tries to relax federal regulations on different industries, and that includes the FCC revising its rules and allowing cartoons to effectively sell toys. And so you get this huge explosion of cartoons designed specifically for that purpose. He-Man, Transformers, TMNT, Care Bears, all of these shows that were produced alongside toy lines and existed principally to get kids interested in buying those toys. Mm. So that goes hand in hand, but because of the desire to license and make TMNT toys, we also get a TMNT cartoon show, and the show is a huge hit. Um, It runs from 1987 to 1996. Uh, It's syndicated. It runs on morning cartoons. It's still, I'm sure you could be able to find repeats of it today, even with new shows coming out. And that is really what launches the franchise from a popular but niche underground comic into a pop culture phenomenon. And the TV show does a couple of important things. It, 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 it lowers the tone to make it more kid friendly. It makes it less violent. It makes the turtles more comical and it helps flesh out their individual characters in the comic. They're all kind of the same person. They have the same headbands. They uh, don't have the distinct personalities. They do that you see in the movie, which came from the cartoon show. We also see introductions of things like the catchphrases, Heroes in the Half Shell, Turtle Power. Those all come from toy execs who are trying to come up with the punchy ways to sell TMNT. Okay. So in the middle of this is when the movie gets going. Um, you know, the movie comes out in 1990. The cartoon started in 1987. The movie starts its gestation period probably shortly after the cartoon gets picked up and is shown to be a hit. Now, Will, did you say you watched any of the cartoon show? Um, well, I watched, uh, later versions of the cartoon show. I think I started watching one that came out in like 1999 or 2000 or something like that. And I got into that one, but I did not see the one in 1980 or the eighties version. The, the one that ran into the mid nineties. Never saw it. So the movie gets proposed, but 
studios aren't interested. And the argument is that Howard the Duck came out a few years before and was a colossal failure. And so comic book movies were largely verboten. I want to butt in here for a second. Howard the Duck. Now there's a movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That movie was in my personal collection. That movie I watched a hundred times. And I'm gonna watch that shit tonight. Now, that and I'm movie just gonna like fucking so hard. <laughs> I can't wait to watch that movie and just be like, no, I don't see it. And I don't really get what the thing yeah, is. Exactly. I'm too old for this. Exactly. <laughs> Nick, yeah. can you specify for all of our listeners? You prefer the Howard the Duck movie to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie? Yes, a hundred percent, dude. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Have you seen Howard the Duck? That movie is nuts. It's that movie is wild. <laughs> It's it's so crazy good. Uh, Tim <laughs> Robbins is in it. Tim Robbins is basically the the Billy of Howard the Duck, and he's oh amazing. God. I particularly There's like the part boobs. where the There's female lead seduces the animatronic duck. Yeah, the, the duck has sex with a, a girl. It's crazy. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never needs- seen this movie, but I think what's really telling about this is how important it is to indoctrinate kids like as soon as, <laughs> as early as they can because these exactly. values like they take with them forever, and like all of a sudden, <laughs> things like Howard the yeah. Duck become uh, really important parts of their life. Very, very influential in my life. Well, just saying. Unfortunately, the world does not agree with you, Nat. Howard the Duck is a huge bomb. The Superman franchise has run out of steam at this point, and nobody wants to do a comic book movie. Nobody's interested. Um, and so they shop this around at a bunch of different studios, and nobody's going to pick up the financing. Eventually, they go to Golden Harvest, which was a Hong Kong studio that primarily did um, martial arts movies. It got its start doing like Bruce Lee movies. It picked up Jackie Chan's movies in the 80s. And it's looking to dip its toe in American films. It did like Cannonball Run and then TMNT is their big follow-up. But they don't have enough movie to finance the film completely. So they also need to find an American studio to distribute it. And they go with New Line, which was a really small company at the time. You know, today we think of New Line as the company that produced Lord of the Rings and got a pretty big... Uh, boost from that and then got picked up by Warner Brothers. But at the time, really, the only movie series that they had to their name was Nightmare on Elm Street, which also by 1990 had kind of run out of steam. Yeah. But between those two studios, they managed to pick up financing and distribution, and they're able to get the movie off the ground. Everyone else passed, but they cobble something together. It's a pr- it's a relatively low budget. Like, it's not tiny, um, but it is certainly smaller than... Uh, relatively speaking, then something like of this ilk would be made with today. Yeah. And lastly, they try and find a director and they go with Steve Barron. Do you guys know this guy at all? He's not the Trump White House guy, right? <laughs> no, that's Bannon. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, have you guys seen the uh, Take On Me music video with like yeah. the dropping in the sketch painting? Yes, yes. Yeah, with the, the bad guys. Yeah, that's, that's Steve Barron. The Billy Jean music video oh, from Michael wow. Jackson. Okay. That's Steve Barron. Cool. He was legit. literally the music video director at the start of the MTV era. He was prolific in a way that directors of music videos just aren't today. And he was able to transition into a career in the movies, like many music video directors do. But I think he's honestly better known for his work with music videos than he is for his feature films. It's really this and Coneheads that are his only two major credits you can decide which of those has the better legacy. Mm-hmm. I guess like uh, that take on me video, I wasn't around for it and it's ev- like everybody knows it. So I feel like that's sort of his, his masterwork. It's there. cheesy, but it's also super memorable. Yeah. It's kind of like the song. Totally. Uh, let's not belt into a <laughs> verse. 
<laughs> no one wants to hear that. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's where we're at. That's where the movie is at during its gestation. It's being written by toy execs turned movie writers. It's being directed by a music video director. It's being financed by a bunch of small companies. This is a little movie that pretty much nobody has any faith in. So you want to know why this comes out in March? That's why. That makes a lot of sense. People just didn't think that this was going to be the phenomenon that it was. Was there any Batman changing any of this? Like, well, that was a huge hit in 89. It was a huge hit in 89, but it comes out well past the point when it could have affected the production of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Gotcha. But it certainly does demonstrate that, like, there is an audience for this. And Steve... Baron has been on record saying when he saw Batman, he's like, oh, good. That was sort of the vibe I was going for. So I'm really glad that that resonated with people. And you can kind of see that a little bit. There's some aesthetic similarities between this and Batman, even though they're being made. I saw a lot of similarities. I don't know. I I was really feeling the Batman connection on this one. I was almost like, did they see Batman before production? But it seems like. It was just sort of a coincidence. I see that too. According to the director, it's a coincidence. I also, I mean, but it, it sounds like just from like uh, your synopsis on, on the production of this, it sounds like that uh, these, it had a different audience than Batman, you know, where Batman felt a little bit more adult. Teenage Mutant Turtles was uh, targeted just to kids, it sounds like, because they, they wanted yeah. to sell toys. And I don't think that was the, the, the point of Batman. I think that they actually wanted to make a good movie. Um, and they definitely. Batman was a four quadrant success right and teacher materials they just wanted so it wasn't exactly like you know it's not exactly apples to apples well that's all i got for like sort of background research here do you guys want to get into the plot of the movie let's go for it here we go we start with um, our, our crime montage <laughs> <laughs> it's very accurate to new york city in the 90s what really hits me with this movie is it's 90s vibe, you know, and it gives it to you so hard in the very, very beginning that it's very, very 90s and not just like any kind of 90s, like New York crime ridden, crazy 90s. Well, I, and I feel like that particular kind of like news report where it's like there's a crime wave in New Like, I feel like that was something that was going on in the 90s. Totally. Oh, like the, New York, the New York Post, like all that. They get it totally right in this where the New York Post is being thrown off the back of a truck. It's really like the like that late 80s, early 90s. Like it's not even like full on 90s. It's like that very specific, scuzzy, late 80s, early 90s the New York Post. just starting oh. to turn the corner from, you know, the, the dregs of the 70s. No, well, I mean, the 80s no, and 90s were just as bad. They were worse. They were like, worse? The murder rate was the highest. It was the peak in 1990 right. in New York. Because of a lot of different factors, including the crack epidemic and the lack of turtles, (laughs) the lack of turtles, Batman had left to go to Gotham. There's just so many things kind of came together. Um, And the city had been, you know, there was money in the city and there was things turning around, but it it wasn't until the Giuliani era that it really started getting cleaned up, which kind of began in like 92, 93, 94. Uh, that's when they started doing like broken windows policing and stuff. So like, this is like prescient. It's like New York was still a very fucked up, dangerous place. Totally. In 1990s. I think this is why it kind of resonated with people because I actually like, I got some stats on like crime in 1990 versus uh, this is 1990 to 2016. In 1990, there were 2,262 murders in New York city. In 2000, Holy shit. In 2016, there were 335. Yeah. The, 
total number of crime in 1990 was 520,000 crimes as opposed to 100,000 in 2016, which is like a, you know, an 80% drop uh, in 26 years. So if you th- if anyone thinks that like, oh, New York City is a little dangerous now, like it was extremely dangerous then. So it's very possible when someone was going to see this movie at the time, like actually at 1990, and they see someone in the theater, like on screen, reading a headline about how crime is soaring. They're like, yeah, crime's soaring. That's exactly what's happening in my life right now. Crime <laughs> my, is soaring. My favorite headline in the entire movie is after we get our crime montage, like the next time we see a newspaper headline, it says something like, it's worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could I share one more stat that was like mind-blowing yeah. and crazy? There was 146,000 grand larceny autos in 1990 as opposed to 6,300 in 2016. So it's like you're, if you had a car in New York, I don't know how many cars there were, but it sounded like there was like a 3% or a 10% chance your car was going to get stolen. (laughs) Like this is the, or at least broken into for the radio. That was a huge thing. People breaking in to steal the car radio and sell it at like chop shops. Obviously you guys were both infants at the time, but you both, grew up in New York City. Did you get that feeling when you were younger? I mean, what was it like? Okay, so I grew up on 14th Street in New York City. I would look out my window and I would just see what's going on all afternoon. I would just sit there. I'd probably spend as much hours watching TV as I did just staring out the window. And you definitely felt that there were, you know, you saw poverty all the time. You just saw it everywhere. Can you guys orient me a little bit? Where in the city do you think April's apartment is? We know exactly where it is. It's Bleecker and 11th, right? Is that what so they that's said? That's closer to where you were. There's a, there's a street sign thing, and it's totally fake. Yeah, because it's a set. It's, it's on Bleecker, so it's it's a little south of where Will was growing So that's up. like Greenwich Village area? Yeah, which was still a little scuzzy at the time. Maybe if, if she had been in the East Village and had lived in that like you know kind of rundown spot, that would have been more in, like a which is only only like twenty you know fifteen blocks away. Uh, that that would have been like more indicative of maybe of a place she would have lived. The village was still pretty nice in in the early nineties. That's that's where mm. I grew up. Later on in the movie, there on the Upper West Side for like one second, uh, Raphael goes up there to see a movie. Oh yeah, uh, and he's. He's on 61st in Central Park West, and then he gets jumped, or the lady gets jumped. So yeah, they're they're all around the city, but we were not privy to any of that. No, we definitely grew up privileged, and and uh, <laughs> and and and, and I, I don't think we. A lot of these stats, I think, were happening in like the outer boroughs and that kind of thing. Sure, but seeing look, we've already talked about how our privilege makes us just the worst people to talk about some of these movies. Yeah, we're we're horrible people in general, but. Um, I really think that there was like a sense of accuracy. It really seems like over the top. Like obviously, I don't think there were people like sitting on their balcony getting their television stolen right as they were watching them. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that, <laughs> which was funny. But um, crime was uh, was was real, and it was a real problem at that point, and it definitely was like all encompassing in everyone's lives. I think there were pockets where you can isolate yourself from it, but uh, it was definitely like an an all encompassing thing in. New York at the time. Moral of the story is this montage is highly accurate. Basically a documentary of New York city. (laughs) Um, yeah, there are three things that get sort of established here that I want to talk about. First, we get April O'Neil right off the bat. Uh, Judith Hogue is April O'Neil. What do you guys think of, of Judith's performance? 
Well, I'll let you take this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's really hard for me to like even view this movie objectively, you know, because it's like, you know, it's like holding the, your favorite toy as a kid. You like it. You don't, you don't know why you like it. You like it. It's great. So what do I think of April O'Neil in this movie? I think she's a babe. I think she's so hot. And I'm just like, <laughs> and, and, and I'm just like, uh, you know, um, you, you were crushing on April pretty hard. When I was a kid, I was crushing on her. You know, I was watching this and I was trying to think of this movie objectively and I was like, wow, she is a horrible actress. Um, or, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, this isn't, um, you know, may, may, maybe, maybe they could have found someone better. I swear to God, in my, okay, this is also a really funny thing. Uh, what's that syndrome called where everyone thought Nelson Mandela was dead? Um, it, or this called the Mandela effect. The Mandela effect, right? Exactly. I had, I was certain until I was like fifteen that it was uh, Sigourney Weaver <laughs> that was that was she, she. She's the girl of aliens, right? Oh man, she would have been pretty good. She'd been too old. Yeah, but she would have been, been awesome. Yeah, she. I in my head, like growing up, I was like, right, yeah, Sigourney Weaver was April. That was for some reason, like I. If you asked me back then, even if you asked me at twenty, I would have been like a hundred percent. Yeah, totally. She was April, and she was great. Well, I mean, this movie is definitely trying to swim in the same pool as Ghostbusters, so I could see where you'd make that jump. Judith Hogue is no Sigourney Weaver, though. I think she's fine, I guess. I didn't dislike her as much as I disliked some of the performances in other movies we've watched, but she made no impression on me. She felt very strange. Well, and it's really tough because she's got to share the screen with five animatronic puppet situations. So in case, you're going to really want somebody who can give some humanity to the screen because they're sharing it with non-humans. Right. A lot of and larger than I just characters. don't think she has, she doesn't really have the quality to like hold our attention while acting against those, those characters. I think that's pretty um, cogent. Yeah. She just can't compete with the visual design and then like the over the top performances of the turtles. Uh, but she's hot. She is hot. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a turtle's lore question? Uh, was is she a teenager in the cartoon? Because mm. in the one that I worked on, she was like a kid. Huh? What do you mean the? Oh, re- so I was kind of. But she was a kid and a reporter. I was kind of surprised that she, she's like a Girl Scout reporter or something. I can't remember, but I was surprised that she's a reporter, adult woman living alone in the city. Because the thing, the only other turtles I've seen, she's like a child. But she, I guess she's definitely it. an adult, but I feel like in the cartoon, okay, I'm not talking about the eighties cartoon, like in the lore later on, the, the turtles feel a little bit older and she feels a little bit younger than what she is, but they're, they're around the same age. But like, you know, when you're like 10 years old, they might as well be 35. Yeah, Everyone's you know? over 13. Is the exactly. Same age. <laughs> but, um, I can actually think of an action figure I have of her. Uh, Oh God. Why, why, why did I have an action figure of her? But I go I mean, get it. The yellow jumpsuit from the original cartoon is, is a pretty, is a good character design. Oh yeah. That's pretty cool. But she, she was, she was young. Uh, she was young in like the, the new cartoons, but not like a, not a teenager. No, she was still a reporter. So the other two things I wanted to briefly mention from this first montage, we've got these depictions of, I don't know, like sort of semi-realistic crimes or like, you know, they're exaggerated, but like they're not absurd. And then we just cut to some ninjas in a van. Hey, man. And we get our first first look at the foot ninjas. I have to say their design is terrible. In a movie with some pretty good production <laughs> design, their weird mesh eye 
goggles and like, like skin tight. <laughs> I was I was into them. Suits. I thought they looked terrible. I like their bug eyes. I think they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> they reminded me of. I'm a Power Rangers person. They reminded me a lot of the putties. They were you guys very know the putties. Power Rangers. Sure. Yeah, right, we'll I love the putties. Break the tie. Good or bad? Foot ninjas. Uh, foot ninjas were dope. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you Everything what I did dope. think was dope was the hideout. Even as an adult, looking at this hideout, I was like, fuck, I would have liked to hang out there when I was a kid. That looks yeah. so cool. It's true. Yeah, the hideout's nice. And I don't want to like push this uh, point too much, but like, I know you were making jokes earlier, and you and now you, you were kind of joking as well about like, uh, I was saying like this is reminiscent of what people actually kind of looked like, but I do really, really recall walking around my neighborhood and like the fuck boys of the day, you know, in 1990, uh, walking around Washington Square Park and walking around Union Square, they really did look like this. They really had this like, I mean, okay, so I also, I mean, I you started mean like, like Danny looks with the baggy t-shirt and like the- Danny looks and like the people looked inside that hideout, you know, so I just feel like this, I mean, it's possible it was 1990, right? And I, I started I had cer- certain consciousness until like 1995 or 1996. So it's possible like these that movies like this influence that style. However, I really did feel like when I'm watching this movie, I'm really like, I kind of feel like I'm back for like a hot minute of like what mm. it was like in New York at the time. Like you had kids running around with no supervision, hanging out with each other that had definitely like even a Smoking five-year-old cigars, could tell. cigars, drinking beers. Totally, have you totally. Guys seen- it's like the movie Kids. It's movie kids. Yeah, the, I was gonna say, have you guys seen the movie Kids? It's very much it that Harmony vibe Korean of like, movies? yeah, or it's uh, he wrote, he wrote it. it, uh, but yeah, that vibe of like the slacker, baggy clothes, ironic, not ironic T-shirt, but just like fuck you T-shirt, like that kind of stuff. That that did feel very legit in this. It movie. was a real deal scene in New York back in the day, and. Uh, you know, I know like Kung Fu movies and stuff were pretty popular also, like I guess like in the 80s <laughs> and that kind of thing. But who knows, man, if the foot was real in 1990. Well, we get to see even more of these guys in the next scene when they jump April O'Neil on her way home. And we get introduced to our lead thug character played by a young baby face Sam Rockwell. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> One of those things. Didn't recognize him. Didn't recognize him. I, I knew he was in the movie before I saw it, but as soon as he came on screen, I recognized him. I was like, Sam, look how young you are. You've got so much career just, ahead of you. He bled into the role for me. Yeah, everyone's got to start somewhere. I actually think his performance is pretty good, particularly in that last scene where he confronts, where Casey Jones confronts him. I think he's pretty good in that scene. Yeah, he manages to kind of turn his character around a little bit with like three minutes of screen time, which is pretty cool. <laughs> but I don't want to dwell on it too long right now because I the next scene is when we get our introduction to the turtles. And we got to talk about the turtles a little bit. The turtles. What are they doing? They're, they're like hiding behind a pallet or something and they kind of run around in the background. Well, so... Th- there's a big intro. They, yeah, they come out of the sewers. They defeat the, the thugs. We don't see any of that because they take out the light. The first time we see them, they're back in the sewers. Right. Oh, he's peeking yeah. out. And Rafa yeah. lost his uh, whatever, they, whatever you want to call his it. His sigh. Sigh. But yeah, so then when we first see them, it's they're back in the sewers. We get this really weird title card where we see their shadows on the wall. Then we get the title card. Then they come out. Yeah, I was vibing at that point. I was like, hey, you know. Maybe this is going to be an amazing film. Who knows? So what do you guys think about the turtles? Let's talk about the design first. Character design. You know, I, I'm into them doing it practical. It's just so much more watchable for me than CGI. Like that's the inevitable thing that we're going to end up talking about because that's, what's changed the most since 
in the 30 years since this movie came out. Right. It's just more fun to watch that kind of stuff. Right. And I'm not saying CGI is worthless and that it should never be used, but for cartoon characters, I don't know. It's just more, if you're doing it in live action, it's fun to see it live. Well, I mean, they did get the best of the best to do it. It's Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Actually, this is sort of where Steve Barron brings the most to the movie, maybe, if you ask me. Uh, he had worked with Henson on The Storyteller, Henson's TV show, and he had worked on the music videos for David Bowie's songs in Labyrinth. And so he had a relationship with Henson, and when they were talking about how to do the Turtles, he's like, let me get Jim on board. Interestingly, this was the only film at the time, and maybe still to date, that was credited to The Creature Shop which at the time was sort of a London offshoot of Jim Henson's studio that he had designed specifically to make movies like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. So there's some pedigree here. I mean, these are the t top of the field when it comes to puppets. And these are obviously dudes in suits, uh, but they're, you know, puppet suits with people controlling the face and doing different puppetry for action scenes, stuff like that. Jim's Henson passed away right around this time, right? right? after the premiere, or maybe right before. I'm surprised that his name wasn't in the opening credits or anything. I feel like that would have been a draw for this right. movie. I even read, I read the Wikipedia page, like, before we started talking, and, like, they even kind of buried his name a little bit into it. And I was like, holy shit, Jim Henson. So most of the actors who performed in the turtle suits are Henson workshop puppeteers. That's where they primarily get their start. They're not stuntmen. Okay. And they're not actors by trade. They're puppeteers. In fact, there's a great anecdote that Michelin Sisti, who is the, the, the body of Michelangelo said about his audition where he goes into the audition with Baron and he just does some fake martial arts because he doesn't know martial arts at all. Um, and he winds up kicking through the wall into the drywall. <laughs> Um, and Baron says, anyone who's that enthusiastic has to be in my movie. So anyway, uh, Jim Henson had said um, on the Wikipedia page, uh, this is where I found this, that um, these creatures were the most advanced he had ever worked with at the time. Um, and you can kind of see it. I mean, like, you know, Nat, to your point about CGI versus puppets, the puppets obviously looked a little cheesy and they were puppets, but like, I, I just, I forgot about it. I forgot they were puppets, you know, I feel, and I, I still, I still felt like a general connection uh, to them as opposed to when I'm seeing the new films on CGI. I don't think the CGI are any better necessarily than these puppets. And if Jim Henson saying they were the most advanced he'd ever worked with at the time, like it just goes to show like, what if we just kept using puppets and kept trying to improve this technology instead of, always using CGI. Well, I think what it boils down to is a lack of control from upper management. You shoot a puppet and the puppet looks the way it did the day you shot it. And you can only do so much to make it look any better or make it more convincing. But if you can CGI it, they changed an entire Sonic movie in five months because everybody was pissed off about how it looked. <laughs> they were like, oh God, we're going to lose money on this. We got to change it. So from a business standpoint, it's way smarter to use CGI, even though in a lot of cases, CGI is more expensive because of the man hours involved and the amount of people that you have to hire. But it just boils down to control from everyone on the creative team at any point in production and also upper management being able to change shit on a whim if they want. So I had one big problem with the suits, which was the mouths. 
I found them <laughs> not only sort of distracting to watch speak, but actually disturbing to watch speak because of the <laughs> unnatural ways their lips would move and curl and pull up from the center. I found it very unnerving every time they did like a close up of one of them talking. <laughs> and they have teeth, right? They do have teeth. Yeah, they have like they nice, shiny, teeth, pearly whites. Weird. Yeah, that is kind of creepy. creepy. It go, I gotta it's look still up the, the early 90s, you know? <laughs> it's like you still got. It's still. Like you just said these are the most advanced that Henson ever worked on. <laughs> yeah, in 1990, you know, 30 years ago before AOL. <laughs> <laughs> the two they bits of advanced. background I want to mention about the turtles, just some interesting performance stuff here. Uh, Raphael is the only turtle that is performed and voice acted by the same person. The guy named mm. Josh Pace, okay. who's, uh, you know, a working actor. He's done a lot of solid work throughout the years. Um, he's the only one who winds up doing both the puppetry and the vocal performance. And I actually think it shows. I think his performance is weirdly more consistent than the other turtles. It helps that he's also totally. the, like the main character of the movie so that we get to know him a little bit better. But I think that actually sells his performance a little bit stronger. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Otherwise, pretty much everybody, like I said, is a puppeteer in the body and a voice actor doing the voice with the exception of Corey Feldman, who gets brought in to do Donatello's voice. Gotta get Feldman in there. <laughs> this was right you like know. when Feldman's career was taking a dive. It was like right when he, the co he gets the cocaine conviction. So this is a tough time for him. And he... I don't know. I didn't really like ever pick out his voice and Donatello is kind of a non-existent character. So he feels kind of like a bit of stunt casting that fails. Uh, Donatello is just in the background hanging out with the other guy all the time. I'm getting into 40 year old dad again. Sorry. <laughs> but the other bit of casting that I think works, although uh, maybe racist is Kevin clash as splinter. This is another one where he's doing the puppetry and the voice. And if you don't know that name, Kevin clash was Elmo. For a long, long time oh, during our oh, childhood, wow. Kevin Clash was Elmo. Being Elmo. Exactly. Guy. Oh, boy. He really depicted a We have to keep a running of... tally of all the people that got totally outed as sexual predators. <laughs> to be fair to Clash, creeps. all that stuff was dropped. He didn't settle. He's never been found guilty of any crimes. But there were a number of troubling accusations about him. But... You know, at the time he was, you know, he was the voice of one of the most iconic kids characters of all time and having, you know, a black man do the voice of an Asian character like Splinter, maybe not, you know, the best optics wise, but I think his performance is pretty solid. And Splinter is interesting because Splinter is not a bodysuit. He's an actual puppet. Okay. Yeah. Was Splinter a really big influence on you growing up? Did any of his wisdom was like, your confusion as well. I, the way you're asking this question is already condescending. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm serious though. I'm serious because he's like he's like a very Yoda totally, character, and people totally. take Yoda pretty seriously. Yeah. Like, so I'm curious. He, he, like, was he that... filled the Yoda vibe, uh, the, the the Yoda you know spot for a lot of kids. I think you know I wouldn't say that he was like I, I always gravitated towards Splinter. Like, not at all. Uh, like, I had other you know I was a big Star Wars guy, so I was into the Yoda thing. But he was in my like top twenty favorite characters in general. General, you know, so he's up he's there. He's one of your guys. He's, he's, he's one of the guys, you know, he's on like the reserves list for like my, at, at the time, like my most important cartoon characters. Your and that cartoon kind of thing. character fantasy baseball team. But you know, he also gets, um, he gets a lot of play like in, in at least in the later cartoons where you actually see him fighting and stuff and he really kicks ass and he's a lot, uh, he's kind of like a Dumbledore. Uh, he, you, you never see him fight. And then when he does, he really kind of kicks ass. It's a cool angle that he raised them all. I kind of like that element of it mm -hmm. that he he took them in and trained them and they grew up under his guidance. And the bit where you realize, you know, that this is truly a family, that stuff works 
reasonably well. You know, his message yeah, to the turtles sure. during the seance, which we can talk about more in a bit, that's the movie's emotional high point, And it works because of the performances of these puppets and because of the characters. Yeah. So where do we go next? Raph gets all grumpy because he lost his sigh, I guess, because he's an angry person. And so he goes out on the streets. You guys read Fantastic Four comics at all? A little bit. And we get some like serious Ben Grimm vibes from like the trench coat and the hat. Mm. He looked, that was yeah. a big thing that, that the, the, that the thing from fantastic four would do all the right, time. Right. Where he'd go out in the real world, but that would be his disguise. <laughs> and I don't know if it was a deliberate illusion or just a happy accident, but it was hard for me to not see that. They call him bogey. I like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a tiny bit, but they even kind of called it out a little bit when it, when the cab kind of almost runs him over and the cab driver goes, the, the guy, the, the guy in the cab goes like, what was that? And the cab driver goes, I think it was a turtle in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they like yeah. called it out how obvious And he's it like, was. are you going to LaGuardia? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that was it. So the other thing that happens during the sequence is we get introduced to our another one of our major characters, Casey Jones. Casey Jones, played by the great Elias Cotes. Yeah, the great Elias Cotes. <laughs> I mean, he's an incredible actor. He has made so many movies, and many of them are some of his have movies? Been excellent movies. Yeah, and what, some what of them movies? Okay. I mean, so he's in the Cronenberg Crash movie. He's in Gattaca. He's an apt pupil. He's in Thin Red Line. He might be my favorite supporting character in Thin Red Line, a movie full of amazing supporting performances. He um, has a great one-scene performance in Shutter Island. He plays, I'm going to forget the character's name, but the, the, the inmate that Leo is hunting the entire time. He has this incredible scar across his face. Just gets one scene, but it's a really, really good scene. He was the lead of a movie called the prophecy that was one of my favorites when I was like a young teenager. It was one of these sort of religious thillers that were really popular at the time. Christopher Watkins, an angel and Elias Codius is a detective trying to solve supernatural crimes. Really fun movie. Uh, maybe doesn't hold up today. I haven't watched it in a while, but you know, he was all over the place and I think he really is a great actor. Did he do it for you in teenage mutant Ninja turtles? Casey Jones is a creep. <laughs> yeah, <I don't. laughs> Casey Jones, man, Gee, he's uh, he's rough in this movie. I don't, I don't know if I can put it all on the performance. It might just be the way the character's written, but he is a cre- he's a violent <laughs> vigilante. So yeah. I, I just this is where the movie lost me. I'm sorry to say, uh, this this character, I was kind of like, I can't deal with this guy right now. I cannot deal with this man. I mean, going back to the comic book roots, I kind of like the design. I like the hockey mask. I like that he's using like different sport implements as his weapons. Is he a major character in the comics? Oh, yeah. Or did they? I just thought they needed a male role so that April could kiss somebody at the end. <laughs> What's his role? He's just another guy that he's, hangs out with them? Yeah, he's kind of what he is in this movie. He's he's an ally. He's a vigilante. He's not okay. part of the team, but he'll team up with them. He'll help them out. Yeah, this that character just I was... I guess it got to be too much for me at that point. But they fight. They have a cool fight. Is it cool? <laughs> Is it cool? You know, you guys got to invite me to a, another one of these with a movie that I, I haven't seen or like maybe that I could, that wasn't like a very important movie in my life growing up because uh, it's like, I don't see it. <laughs> like, I just don't. Like, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't, I, I certainly could tell that like he was very cheesy. And I think for the first time I noticed this, this movie was kind of cheesy, um, like especially April, but also Casey Jones. Um, and then every. Had you revisited the movie since you were a kid? I haven't. I mean, I, I feel like. I'll watch it like once every like six or seven years. So I feel like I watched it like, okay. I mean, I watch it like ironically, like I, I I'm watching it to get that, right. to get that nostalgia buzz. But to me and to a lot of other people that like this movie from the time, this Casey Jones in particular 
is super iconic and really beloved as like a 90s figure. Did you like aspire to be Casey Jones? I definitely didn't aspire to be Casey Jones, but everyone thought, I mean, because he was the only human, you know, in the movie. So people thought he was a badass, but uh, he's certainly a, a, a scumbag. But yeah, you know, you did kind of look up to him as a kid. You, <laughs> you did. You did. Uh, it was different times. In such a good place. It's a different... These were our role models. <laughs> sure. I'm just going to mention again in, in Howard the Duck, Tim Robbins is like a totally nice nerdy guy. <laughs> Great role model. He's kind of a loser, but he's also a good man. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this guy's fighting, you know, fighting the good fight in a really rough city. <laughs> um, hockey is like pretty <laughs> cool back then, you know, Rangers win in 94 and you got this like guy running yeah, around the, the hockey Wayne stick, Gretzky. the Wayne Gretzky era. So it's like, uh, yeah, hockey's really on the up and up. He had a cricket bat too. He's, he's multicultural. He's multicultural. <laughs> I think that's gotta be because the director is British. He knows weirdly a lot about uh, cricket, this New York vigilante. It's yeah. honestly, it's like, I really, I, I want to see where you guys are coming with it. <laughs> Cause I'm just like, man, Kate, like the moment Casey Jones gets like, just comes on in. It's like, I'll get, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll feel the goosebumps <laughs> that I had as a kid being like, well, yo, I'll, I love this dude. You know, he's <laughs> just so rad. He doesn't give a fuck. I'll be honest. <laughs> when he first comes on screen, I was, I was kind of on board because I think the design is, is so good. And I was so jazzed to see, um, Codius in the movie that I was, I was ready to like Casey Jones, it really isn't until we get to the farm that I start to be like, oh no, oh, oh no, no, Casey, no. So where do we go after that? They run into April. Uh, she gets attacked in the subway. Raph takes her to the lair. We get the turtles backstory and then they take her home. I really enjoyed the backstory. I wanted to say, I loved the little mini turtles and rat. I wanted, <laughs> I, I was curious how they did that. Turtles. Was it with the rat? Was it like a puppet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't sure because I loved it when he did Kung Fu. That was my favorite part yeah. of the movie. When the little rat did the Kung Fu. What do you think about this, like, um, this visual signifier with like just the people against the black background? Oh, I like that. That's super 90s. I think that was, a, I think that's a, a, a visual signifier that we've done a good job moving away from. It's well, it's sort of like a comic book where it's like in a bubble or something True. and there's still stuff behind it. I, I mean, it. look, the, the idea is like this movie took some like artistic liberty, like as an actual movie. I know it's like, you know, it still is definitely a movie geared for kids. But I noticed there were a couple of scenes that it wasn't shot just like a kid's movie. It, lo it looked like they tried to make it look like it was for all audiences. But also like there was a, an artistic element that was um, that, I, that I thought was pretty cool, you know, to, to, to a certain extent. And I think this was one of the scenes, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like a, a blockbuster that we're used to, where there's just a million different scenes and a million different explosions. They had a lot of like really long shots. It was kind of a lot, a lot of things that were really drawn out. Sure. And this was one of those things where they didn't have, they, they showed a flashback uh, and they did it in kind of like an art noir, like a, uh, they made it kind of look like a college <laughs> film. Well, see, sort of. I feel it looks like a music video. I think this is where you can see the music video oh, production. Yeah. coming. Yeah. Through. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And so, and the music video quality, you know, when you see the layer of the, uh, the foot that you really get the music video vibe in there. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I love the name, the foot. The Foot Clan. <laughs> Obviously, it's a reference to The Hand, which was Marvel's ninja society that, that popped oh, up in like Daredevil comics. But it just, the foot is so much stupider than The Hand. <laughs> yeah, the Foot Clan. That's fair. All right. So they take April back home. And while they do, their lair gets act. Raph does a really bad ninja job and gets followed back to the lair and Splinter is kidnapped. Before we get too far, can we have the Domino's conversation? Oh, yeah. The fact that they ordered Domino's? 
what the hell? <laughs> I get it. They needed money. I'm sure they got sponsored by Domino's. But that was insane. Ironically, it was Pizza Hut that had the big marketing campaign that coincided with the movie, even though they didn't have the product placement in the movie. Wow, that's really interesting. Okay. The thing that upsets me most about that scene, though, is that they turned the pizza sideways. Yeah, right. And they're assholes to the delivery guy. <laughs> they are. He was like, he's like 30 he was seconds a minute late. late. Master says, don't pay extra for late pizza. And he's like, you're in a sewer grate. I couldn't find you. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, Spongebob gets kidnapped. Yeah, it's. I thought he was dead. There's There was a shot where I thought he's on like pulverized on the ground. I think he's just rubble. But he was just kidnapped. Cause they, and then they, they flipped out and were really sad. Uh, but he's, he's fine. They go to April's and she's got a little backstory going. Yeah, I guess she owns a junk shop, but is also a reporter. It's her father's old shop. Right? Yes, that's it's all what she said. And she's holding on to memories. Did that ever get resolved in any way? It burns to the like ground. Her character on her fire. Character of she holds on to memories. Is that a is that just a random thing they threw in they there? They all get burned up. She has to let them go okay. because they're all destroyed. Yeah, I guess so. Remember how like Kevin Bacon didn't have a plan and then at the end he had a plan? Those little things okay. that just improve the quality. So okay. then so they, they, they get into this, like, what, what's your guys' take? Because, um, you know, I have, obviously, you probably get my opinion. But then this, in between the house lighting on fire and them going to April's house, there's this huge fight. Uh, what What is your take on, on this, this, this brawl? It's probably the biggest action set piece of the entire movie. It goes on yeah. a long time. I mean, it starts with just Raph on the roof. And then it comes down into April's apartment and then it goes down into the junk shop. And I have to say, I really liked that aspect of it, like the levels of it as a way to have it visually change as the fight is progressing. Yeah, that was cool. I thought that was pretty cool. Totally. um, But that was a cool fight. I I liked it. There's a lot going on. I like that it just kept the, the, the ninjas just kept coming in. Overwhelming ninjas. So many ninjas. Yeah, it was really t- it was really tight. I mean, I love the scene where the answering machine is just hanging down and the cord's on fire <laughs> and she gets a call and you can hear on the answering machine she's getting fired. I really love it. And he that. relays the message. And then he relays that it yeah, like, like a couple days later. Here is my only problem with this fight scene. Well, I've got two. One's a small gripe. I don't find the turtles particularly convincing in action sequences. They have like the same face because they can't articulate the face while the they're in the like the the movement model, so they have this weird grimace the entire time, and the martial arts are just kind of like meh. They're probably fine for a kids' movies, so I consider that small criticism. But my much bigger problem is when you realize that most of these ninjas are children. Wait, what? We learn in like the next scene when we go back to the foot layer that the ninjas are the disaffected kids. Right. Oh, okay. So the turtles See, are like beating f- up yeah. and murdering and burning to death children. The, the, the turtles are also What's children. Ninjas, They're teenagers. Though? They're all teenagers fighting each other. <laughs> You're right. If <laughs> teenagers kill other teenagers, then it's okay. The creeps of this movie are, uh, you know, Casey Jones and April. They're just hanging out with kids the entire time. How old is April? Like, like 25? She's like a top reporter at a small news station. I guess she could be 25. She could be just out of school. She could be like in her early 20s too. 22, 23. My one... Still hanging out with turtles. uh, My one issue with this fight scene that I noticed this time around is they got away so easily. Uh, They they went through that like weird random hatch. Yeah, did did you guys' apartments have trapdoors? (laughs) Yeah, right. But even this is the trapdoor, you know, I mean, it's just like, this is just a movie thing. You know, they got to get out so they can develop the movie. But Casey Jones was like, I'll hold them off. 
usually what happens is in any other movie is uh, either that person dies that has to hold them off or find some other crazy escape route. But he just kind of went the same way they did. And then the ninjas didn't follow him. (laughs) They didn't follow them into that into this place that they went. Also, if I were to say one thing, there was this was also the first time I ever thought about this. But and this is one I'm I'm really nitpicking here because it's a movie about, you know, Japanese it's a movie about martial arts. But if this is a real gang, like can't they can't they get some guns up in this up in this gang? <laughs> you know, like can't they have a fight? They could just gone in there with you know um, a, a couple of shotguns or whatever, and like cleaned it up and walked away. But will that's not the way of the ninja? All cartel style. There's no guns in this movie. Not a there? single one. I didn't. I don't remember a gun. No. That's kind of cool. Good for them. But you would think even later yeah. on, you know, in the movie, I mean, you think the the foot later on would have been like, okay, so these nerd turtles are really, really tough. We tried fighting them once and they whooped our ass. So uh, we're going to, uh, we're just going to shoot them. Except I feel like they, the turtles kind of get their asses whooped themselves, which I actually like. And I think the movie makes a good argument for why that happens and what's different when they come back. You know, the fact that they were able to pick off Raph right at the beginning, the fact that they were ambushed and taken by surprise, the, you know, the, the contrast of numbers and the fact that the turtles haven't really come together as a unit yet the way they will at the farm so that when they return to New York, they are prepared for the big battle at the end. Right. Yeah. They're not in unison. So that's what happens next is we go to the farm and we get scenes of Casey Jones being a creep and the turtles doing martial arts out in the woods. Yep. And having a spiritual experience. What is up with, is it, Raph screaming from the rooftop in the rain. Is he? On, I think he's on a cliff, or is it? Or is, is he, he on, on a roof? roof? No, I think he's on the top of the barn. Splinter. Oh boy. What did you guys think of the seance scene that sort of wraps this whole thing up? You know, I guess it's Donatello has like a weird telepathic connection. Can we, can we go back a little bit? Why, why do you guys hate this connection? whole segment so much? Why, why do you guys really hate? They go out in the country. They're chilling. They're sad. I'm curious why you why you despise it and think it's uh, think it's really bad. Uh, so bad that you, you want to just skip over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, just nothing really happens, you know? It was a little long. We're an hour and 20 minutes in and nothing really happens. It, it was a little long for me. Like, it, there must have been like 10 or 11 scenes and... I think you could have accomplished a lot of that faster and you kind of, it's like, I came here for turtles in the city and I'm, I'm in the country. What are we doing here? Come on. We're in the country for too long. You think you want the movie to get, I get, it. To get there training. faster? I feel like this is the problem with like blockbusters these days is they don't have this sort of segment where there's just like a scene where they're, you're, you're, you're kind of like they're either humanizing them. I know it's not the right term because they're turtles or turtleizing them. It's our stupid millennial attention spans. spans. You know, I just think we're, we're, when we actually get these scenes in an action movie now, we're like, oh no. Well, I mean, okay, you know, it wasn't particularly good. And again, I think what really killed it for me was the Casey Jones of all of it. I don't. I don't need Casey Jones scenes without turtles. I don't know. I don't need him giving unasked massages to Angel O'Neill. <laughs> this is this is the one funny thing about the. I mean, yeah, that was definitely. I'm not going to try and defend Casey Jones for not being a creep here, but I did really like the scene where they just had an argument. So I wanted to say there's another recent blockbuster that has a very similar structure to this movie, including at the midpoint having the characters retreat to a farm to lick their wounds and you know, come together as a team. Avengers Age of Ultron. Wow. Oh, I never saw this that This movie one. is actually really similar to that, like beat by beat to that movie, which I find really fascinating. A lot of people criticize the farm scene in that movie too, although I actually really like that scene there. Here, I just find that there isn't enough 
drama between the the turtles there isn't enough of a story that's being developed between the turtles to sustain this sequence there's a lot of movies that do this i'm trying to think of some other ones i feel like it's a pretty common trope where it's like you get fucked up it's like the batman going to the prison where he has to fix his back like they do this he doesn't choose to go there that's true, but it's like you're in exile. Actually, it's like exile. I think Roadhouse has a very similar thing, but they literally, it's like superheroes that get beat and retreat to a farm. Okay, yes. But it's, in a, in a broader context, it's the shame, it's the low point, it's the it's rebuilding. The it's the classic midpoint, low point. Yeah. What did y'all think about the seance the, that ends the sequence? I want to I talk about that because I actually think it's a, a really interesting scene. And to your point, Will, about you know this being a little bit more interesting than your average blockbuster, this is a scene that I would n- you would never see in the Michael Bay produced Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you know, the adult in me, like I, I see that that scene is definitely pretty corny. Um, but uh, I mean, whatever. You know, it was. It, this is how this was their turning point. Uh, this was how they did it work for you as a kid. Did you like you know choke up or feel inspired by it when you were a kid? No, a kid? not at all. I was like, get ready, like let's start fighting again. I, but I wasn't like, <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily bored. You know, what did it for me as a kid was Raphael in the bathtub, just mm. being unconscious for a while. Like I, that definitely did it for me as a kid. I, sure. I don't think I would. There's no, no point in this movie as a child where I was like feeling the pain that the characters felt you know i was like eating pop tarts and like you know running around the house as i was watching this movie yeah i mean there was something i think that it it there's something like supernatural about the turtles and having this seance where they kind of like you know what did they they like saw splinter like in the fire or something like that make that up like i i uh, Right, yeah, splinter speaks to them from the fire and i mean it exists principally for splinter to tell them that he loves them. Yeah. It's nice to that call the them movie, his sons. It has heart. There is a, a beating heart at the core of this movie. And I do appreciate that, especially for a kid's movie that could easily just be violent, pulpy nonsense. Like it, it is good to have some soul to a proceedings like this. Is it the best children's entertainment? I don't know, but any kind of soul and heart is a good thing. My biggest problem with this scene is that I feel like it's undercut by the fact that Splinter survives. He True. literally says to them that this is like his last message to them, but then he's fine. He ends the movie <laughs> saying like cowbunga dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Will, did you go around saying cowbunga after this movie came out? No, I, I, I never used that term, unfortunately. I should have. I will now. I will now. For our age group. <laughs> <laughs> so they returned to New York. While they're at the farm, we we cut. We learn a little bit more about Shredder, our villain. We haven't really talked about Danny at all. You know, he's he's a character. He's the son of April's boss, and he's part of the Foot Gang, and eventually like volunteers to become one of the ninjas. Although he doesn't really ever go through with that. And he meets Splinter when Splinter is in captivity, and Splinter tells him about his backstory and about Shredder's backstory. And so we're learning a little bit more about our villain. This is our first time talking about him because he doesn't really come in until halfway through the movie and he doesn't do anything until the final set piece. Where do we, where do we land on Shred? He's an asshole. He's scary uh, enough. Do you like his sparkly Michael Jackson jacket? <laughs> yeah. 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 That had, I like his mask. That had a Power Rangers uh, sort of vibe going. He is so Power Rangers. Yeah. He gave me the Mortal Kombat vibe as well. True. Like 
Especially those shots of the flashback, like that just looked like a Mortal Kombat fight. Killed the master. Right. Yeah, it just all blended together for me. He's got a great name. He's got a great concept. I bet he looked great in the comics. I feel like he's a character who does not play on screen at all. I feel like... Well, he looks like at the end he's of the day, from he's just a, a Super Sentai TV just show. Hear, yeah, like the people listening to this and being like, "Shut the fuck up!" Like Shredder is <laughs> the fucking shit. <laughs> was he Gen X Darth Vader? Like, am I being? He like- was a raw. Yeah, I mean, he. I mean, yeah. You know, no, he wasn't like. I maybe not that hardcore, but like, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of people that grew up on this movie, and he was a really tough, really intense villain. And it's truly, I'm watching it now, and you know, I didn't... Because re- his shirt is sparkly. I, I noticed that for the first time. Uh, <laughs> I noticed that for the first time watching it this time around. You know, honestly. And I think what that goes to show is that, uh, I mean, one, who the demographic this is for. Um, two, what was available in terms of special effects at the time. So it's like, that was enough at the time for people to be into it and, be, and still somehow be intimidated by him, even though he was wearing a beautiful, sparkly, purple, uh, glittery suit. <laughs> With some <laughs> with, with with punk spikes on his shoulders, um, and that cape was pretty badass. I like that he wears the cape above the blades that could cut through the cape. Yeah, right. <laughs> pretty sure the cape's supposed to go underneath, but even the cape, like you the, do, you the wrinkles on that cape. I mean, how do you get the creases on a cape like that? That was that was kind of gorgeous, you know. I mean, think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and here comes Shredder down the catwalk. <laughs> yeah. We're really into the pleated cape. I definitely, in my head, like when his, you know, when the bald guy, uh, like unrolls his cape over his um, spikes on his shoulder, I was like, man, this guy is such a little bitch. Like, why did he do that? (laughs) Why did he do that to to his boss? Like, that's so weird. Um, (laughs) But, you know, at the same time, it's just, it's, it's so hard for me. Okay. It's, 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 it's really interesting to hear your guys take not having any real context about like the Ninja Turtles or having any context of the people at the time, because like, I guess I'm not really looking at this movie as, you know, I'm not thinking about it the same way I would think of like Lawrence of Arabia or Citizen Kane. I'm like, this movie is, those are my favorite movies when I was, <laughs> yeah, you see, this is, I mean, <laughs> there's just a different approach that you have, that you have in these movies. And I guess like maybe time isn't isn't great for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and maybe you know um a 40 year old can't watch these movies and be like oh I really liked it it was you know that then it's objectively great um but I mean to be fair we're only 30 that's the premise of the podcast I don't know I was gonna ask you guys this at the end but like this is just as good of a time to talk about it now but do you think that it's possible for an adult to go back to Never Never Land and like become a child again and watch this kind of movie? Is it for different, different starts for different? Maybe I'm just super cynical and I'm like, I've seen too many movies at this point and I can't just go back to my seven year old self and watch this like that. I don't know. If I can put my take in, is I, I think if you had a, um, a history with the movie, then you can do it and you can take it. I, that's what I'm seeing now. That because I had a history with this movie and like hearing your guys uh, opinion of Shredder just being like this kind of pansy that um, has, you know, uh, a ridiculous outfit and, and, and not a very developed character. When as a kid, like to me, he was just so mysterious and just symbolized all the evil possible in the world. And he was just really, really strong and really tough. You know, the ultimate like boss character at the end of the video game, you know, like he's the boss you fight at the end. It sounds like to me that um 
it's almost a disadvantage to haven't to to not having seen this movie when you were young and more impressionable because I think you guys are kind of missing out. You know, I think it's a really, really, I know. it's a really to me, it's like a really fantastic uh, movie and like time machine um, where I'm going back and really feeling it. I, we could talk about the rest of the movie and, and, and as we should, but I mean, we're pretty close to the end, you know, like there was one just like I, the movie was like the sweat in the movie for some reason uh, resonated <laughs> with me um, just being like hot and in New York and there being crime and it being dirty and smelling. There's when splinter is in the shackles in that room of garbage, you know, I don't know if, I mean, Nat, I don't know the if this, I don't know if this really is, mean a lot. I don't to know you. if this is reminiscent of, of the building that you grew up in Nat, but like I went like walking into the trash room in the apartment building I grew up in. It was exactly like that. Like exactly <laughs> like that. Like they didn't like have fun, interesting take on trash. You know, they actually just like threw a bunch of trash in there and it looked like a really just, and I like, I smelt it and then, and it was sweaty and it was like, you know, I felt like grossed out. Uh, cause like I really felt yeah. I, 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 I could totally see 100% what that space would be like and uh, and feel like. In a way, like I feel a little bit blessed and I feel kind of bad for you guys that you have to look in this movie, uh, you know, Well, and critically. I especially feel bad because I'm a, I'm a New Yorker and I feel like this is such an important New York movie to you in the same way that like other New York movies are really important to me and shape how I see my own city. Uh, but, you know, I think we all have that VHS collection of like 10 or 15 movies that really, at least people our age, that really kind of shaped just the kind of movies that we end up liking in the future and who we become in a way. Like I, I had a bunch like Howard the Duck and one, <laughs> one that the one I always think back to is for some reason is Jumanji. Sure. Like to me, that is like sure. a cinematic masterpiece. And I, I've never really revisited it, but like I can just remember so many things about it. And I'm like, Jumanji's great cinema. What are you talking about? And like, it's if it is, if it gives you those feelings, then it is great cinema. That is, it did its job really well because we watched plenty of terrible movies that we didn't respond to very yeah. well when we were kids too. So I have two things I want to say on this conversation and they're interrelated. And the first is that you say, you know, you feel bad that we're missing out. When I watch this now, the reason that I find it so unsightly is that not <laughs> only is it not a particularly good movie, but I am continually aware that it exists only to sell me things. Mm -hmm. And so what I missed out on was a giant merchandising bonanza. And that's not something I really regret missing that the people who wanted me to see this movie were people who wanted me to see it so that I would go buy toys and not people who wanted me to see it because they wanted to introduce me to a new world or new characters or great art. One of the things that I have discovered as I've gotten older and have watched movies that either I saw as a kid and didn't like, or maybe missed when I was a kid is that artistry will out that you can make a great movie that's targeted at children, or you can make a crass, shallow capitalistic movie that's targeted at children. And the ones that aspire to be more still resonate with me, even as an adult and the ones that don't don't. Did you um, read about this movie before you watched it? I did. I didn't. I didn't know but any of this merchandising. Even if I hadn't read crap. about it, 
even if I hadn't read about it, you know, the 50 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle lunchboxes that I saw every day at the cafeteria when I was a kid, the action figures that my friends had, the video games that were in the arcade, like it was unavoidable. And when you're a kid, maybe that doesn't really, you don't understand the environment that produces that conglomerate of material. But as an adult, you certainly do. And I don't find that charming or fun. I find it gross. Well, but all the artists on the ground may have not had that same sentiment as the people that were financing the movie. Yeah, I don't think Eastman and Laird felt that way. And maybe not even Baron, but I think certainly some people involved did. I think Golden Harvest and New Line felt that way. Was there not like some sort of comic book series or fantasy or popular series that you were into uh, that was that that, that you kind of like, were you into Marvel or you into Star Wars at all growing up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you ate it up in some some form or another no, as a kid. yeah and don't get me wrong star wars is a particularly good counterpoint to this because even though star wars begins as this weird esoteric fantasy idea in george lucas's mind star wars succeeds because he sells it and sticks it on lunch boxes and packages it and so that's a fair rebuttal to you know say you know if you liked one of these things you know why do you treat this one differently um but i think there is a difference in that whatever teenage mutant ninja turtles was when eastman and laird started it the thing that we get in this movie is the thing that the toy execs turned it into. I'm not saying you can't do good stuff there. I'm not saying that if you like those things that you are somehow being duped. I'm just saying that that context is inseparable to me and it will always tarnish my experience. We should finish up the plot though. So we don't end on such a down note there. Uh, (laughs) So they go back to New York and I am not done complaining. Casey goes to free Splinter. Why is Casey freeing Splinter? Why isn't it the turtles? Well, because Casey just like just had a beautiful scene where he told them he loves them. Why aren't (laughs) they the ones breaking in to save Splinter? Because they didn't have the puppet guy and the animatronic guys on the same day, man. (laughs) No, this is this is the Han Solo empathy moment that you were waiting for for Casey for Casey Jones. You know, where he's like this savage, but actually, like you take all that crap away, and he's a good person at heart, and who will free the finds the prisoner, and he'll take him, and he just says, "Oh, we're a friend. Like, don't worry about it. Like, we're good. Like, I'll fight for you." He's basically he's basically gonna fight for his life for this random talking rat that he doesn't know about uh never that he's never met before so uh that that's that's why casey casey took him there's a little redemption he's not just a a savage warrior guy i do like casey persuading the other teens because he's sort of like them in a way you know he's chosen to live outside the bounds of society but he has turned his rebellion into a force of positivity in the city while the teens are being more you know selfish and so it works for me to have him be the one to persuade them to abandon the Foot Clan. I just don't understand why he's the one freeing Splinter. That would be such a powerful emotional drive for our turtles for the final set piece to have them be fighting to save Splinter. But Splinter is already saved by the time the fight begins. Uh, did you have something you wanted to say about the the the, the disbanding of the Foot Clan, Will? Did I say something in the beginning about that? Uh, I don't. I don't have a particular. Yeah, we're talking about Sam Rockwell. How I thought his performance oh, in the scene is so actually right. pretty good. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, the Sam Rockwell part. 
God, that pissed me off when he was just like, hey, we're, you know, we're a family. <laughs> you know, it's like, go kick this guy's ass. You're like 20 of you. <laughs> what are you doing? You've just been like, he didn't, there's no way that, uh, that he convinced you by saying like, yeah, you think this is family? This is family. That was it. That was his speech. That was, uh, Casey Jones's speech to try and, <laughs> to try and convince him that, that, uh, their whole life the past year or whatever is completely wrong. Like try, go, try going to a gang meeting. I don't know what they're like, but I can't imagine like showing up at the bloods, you know, meeting and being like, you call this a family? This is a family. Wow. This is a family. You know, and they'll be like, man. I gotta go. I gotta call my dad. <laughs> that guy's got you know? a point. <laughs> like they're not gonna do. So I was like, you know, it's funny. I did not realize it was Sam Rockwell until you mentioned it. Um, I didn't think about it at all, but I did think about, wow, that character is so stupid. Um, <laughs> and why are these people just standing around? Like they would have all the would have taken uh, Casey Jones. There was so many of them. They all felt that way. They all felt like they, they were done with what it. I think Rockwell plays in this scene particularly well is the barely submerged doubt that he, he knows what he's supposed to say. They're in a gang. They're tough. They're family. But you can see in his face that even he doesn't really believe it. Right. He knows that what they've been doing is wrong. Like Danny, he's just sort of looking for a way to make this mean something to get out something that will make his life less alienated and less difficult. When Casey's telling him you're wrong, you know, you've thought about this the wrong way. It's resonating with a truth that Rockwell and that these other kids have been trying to bury. And I think Rockwell plays that shit. Like I, I, I feel it. And maybe it's cause I just like him. And so I'm predisposed to, to, to like his performance, but I think he's actually doing stuff with a level of subtlety that basically no other actor in this movie is capable of. <laughs> you know, I think for a second I'm able to leave my like eight year old self behind. And I'm like, this scene didn't need to happen the way it happened. Well, we should get to the final fight. We've been going a long time. Okay. I want to hand this over to you, Will. And I want you to just gush about this fight for a second. Right. You love this fight, don't you? Sure. You know, I, if I had to pick my number one fight, I would say it was definitely the fight in, in April's house. But I appreciate this fight because you really get to see Shredder like, just whoop their ass. And that's something that's like kind of consistent throughout um, the cartoons that I watched and like other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff. Um, and it's always kind of cool to just have the boss, like that guy that like is just so much more powerful than your heroes because you want your heroes to win. You don't want them to win easily because that's boring. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would be a shame if a character just shows up and then in two moves <laughs> yeah. drops the villain off a roof. Don't, right. <laughs> um, but no, hey, but that was a... Let him have it. An epic, okay, hold on, hold on. We had never seen... It was Splinter. You know, we hadn't seen him fight yet. Um, <laughs> How did he get captured if he's so good at fighting? <laughs> whatever come on he's a talking rat <laughs> he, was, he was eating pizza he was yeah he was watching you know oprah who wasn't around at the time maybe, maybe it was a little bit you know i think that the fight was it was a good fight i think it was like, like like the turtles fighting the foot was a good fight um then they got their ass whooped by shredder which was fine and uneventful i would say as a kid it was dramatic for sure when splinter shows up like you know that's that awesome scene that um you know, the seven, eight year old me that was like, fuck yeah, Splinter's ready to fight and he's whipping ass. And I will say, like, actually, for a fact, you know, Splinter handles them, as you're saying, in two moves and Shredder falls five stories into the uh, trash compactor, you know, the garbage truck. That legitimately gave me a fear of um, garbage, of like falling into a garbage truck. 
when I was a kid <laughs> because I was like, that is, that was scary. I was like, that is an ultimate, that's a crazy way to die, to fall into a garbage truck. And that, that is really scary. So I definitely, that, that, I think if anything had an impression of me as a kid at all about this movie. It's like a fear of like quicksand, you know, where you're like, this is a real danger that we face in the world. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, so he falls in the compactor, which is an ultimate, that's like such a great New York City way to die. You know, <laughs> like you fall in the garbage truck and get smushed in the back of it. I mean, that is, that's awesome. And this movie, like it really did. I, I mean, I said it earlier and I'm sure, you know, people <laughs> uh, that have listened to the entire entirety of these two hours have <laughs> know that, uh, I really hold true that like, I think this was a fairly representative movie of what it was like in New York city at the time. And it really, even the symbolism of a garbage truck is just so New York city cleaning up the city, cleaning up the city. I like your point. That's a good point. Okay. Let's talk about this movie's legacy. Let's start with the box office. This movie had a budget of $13.5 million. So like I said, that's not a huge budget. That's kind of middling at the time. It opens to 25 million. That may not sound like a lot today, but at the time that was record-breaking. It was the largest non-holiday release of all time. So that means not Christmas, not 4th of July, not Memorial Day. And they weren't expecting it, right? Well, I mean, they weren't well before production started, but you know... After production wraps up, we've got Batman, we've got the TMNT becoming even more popular as a cartoon and as a merchandising brand. And the anecdote I mentioned earlier that I wanted to say was that a Tom Gray, who was the head of production at Golden Harvest, the financier, he had this quote that I read where he said, uh, I ran into a certain Paramount executive at a basketball game at UCLA, and they had just opened and broke the record for a non-holiday release with Hunt for Red October. With 17 million. Uh. I said, congratulations. He said, we're going to own the spring. And I kind of smiled knowing we would be opening the following week. We opened at 25 and smashed the record. Ugh. Damn. So getting back to our very first movie, this is kind of the one that puts Red October to bed a little bit. It winds up grossing 135 million domestic, 202 million worldwide. It's a colossal success. Until Blair Witch Project comes out, it is the highest grossing independent film of all time. Wow. Why couldn't you start That's why can you start amazing. this with that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so the point here being, uh, Will, you are vindicated. The world agreed with you. It did not agree with Nat and I. Uh, I want to introduce a new little a little game here, Nat. I'm gonna call it the okay. ranking game. I want you to try and guess where in the list of nineteen ninety domestic box office gross this winds up. What rank it winds up at? Uh, well, we we just found out it did really well, so maybe number. I'm feeling good about number eight. Number eight. Will, do you want to toss in a guess here? I mean, with no context at all, number three. <laughs> number three. <laughs> it winds up number six. This is the sixth highest grossing film of the year. That's okay. not bad. How many? But it did have a pretty negative critical reception. Uh, I had one quote I wanted to read from Kim Newman that I thought really summed up my experience. She wrote, uh, the turtles are never remotely convincing as teenagers, mutants, ninjas, or turtles, <laughs> leaving them stranded on the screen as big green Muppets with different colored headbands. Harsh, harsh. Many 40 year old dads sat through this movie in March of 1990 and were pissed off. You know, it's not a movie for critics. It's not a movie for critics, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, I think uh, we, we, 
whatever you know it's like it was just a fun i think we've experience. proven that from this two yeah, hours. exactly it was a, i mean i'm all on board with you guys normally uh and that we we generally have pretty similar taste in movies you know this one hit a chord and i and i wish you guys were able to experience that too you know well that's very generous nat did you have any closing thoughts should we do our context of the 90s? I guess we kind of covered it with like the toy merchandising sure. and that and whole crime. thing. Can I make one more point before we, before we this whole thing's over? This soundtrack yeah, of this this soundtrack yeah. of this movie was kind of dope. Did you guys disagree? You guys missed that? There was some cool, the score or the the, sc- the, music. the score or the, what, what's what's the hell's the difference? Well, I, I mean like the pop songs, like the rap song over the, the rap credits. song over the, the credits was rap. bad. <laughs> uh, it was 1990. <laughs> you know, this is not in the golden era of rap just yet. But uh, the score, the score was dope. The score was fucking sick. I, yeah, the score was was good. It's it was quality score, and it, it was just the right amount of like '80s, '90s cheese, that, like that fit the movie really well. It didn't go overboard with any of that, and it also wasn't too gothic or like over serious. It, it it struck the balance that it needed for this kind of movie. I have no thoughts on the score. But to your point, Nat, I guess if we wanted to briefly mention some of the 1990 narratives and themes we've been talking about. I think technology is a big one. I mean, this is like the last hurrah for practical effects here. Yeah. When these movies get remade in a decade or two decades, you know, decade and a half, they're CGI. You know, I also think this movie is interesting because it presages the superhero trend in the way that Batman 89 did, you know, the comic book movie trend. It still takes about another 10 years for Hollywood to figure out that it's not that people wanted any comic book adaptation. They specifically wanted Marvel and DC adaptations, but but it certainly is showing the industry moving in that direction. And it's also specifically to that effect, you know, a movie that's targeted at young boys. The 90s, if the industry transitions in one direction, it's away from four-quadrant filmmaking and towards American male teenagers. Mm. That becomes the dominant audience of most of their decision-making mm-hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s. And this, again, sort of presages that in a really prescient way. Interesting. Totally. Cool. Well, this is probably the longest discussion of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What do you expect? What do you ever, expect? Ever we are much longer than the movie at this point. <laughs> It's available on Netflix, by the way. I, I keep wanting to say this at the beginning of the podcast, so if somebody starts listening, they could actually watch the movie. Because if you listen to all of this and you've never seen the movie, <laughs> then I can recommend some great therapists in the tri-state area. Yeah, I guess my closing thoughts would be, I always liked Cowabunga. Cowabunga. Great <laughs> great line to end it on. That was... <laughs> Alright, I'm not going to get back to this. It was made for fucking kids, all right. guys. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe the end of it. Will, what the fuck does Kyle Bunker even mean? It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> for the love Will, of God. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. You know, next time invite me to a movie where I don't have this relentless passion for, you know, something I could think like an adult about <laughs> would be helpful. One you can hate more freely. Yeah, exactly. For Back to the Movies, this is Ben. This is Nat. Signing off. <laughs>